Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 604 for the 5th of August, 2018. This week, organizing a music library seems like it should be easy, but complications keep getting in the way. I've found some uncomplicators. In short circuits, over the years, tiny computers have been novelties, but they haven't really gained widespread acceptance. Now there's a new one with some power. Are you tempted to buy some of those sale-priced $20 Ray-Ban sunglasses that you see ads for on the internet? If so, just drop a $20 bill in the trash and you'll be ahead of the game. In spare parts only on the website, Canon is about to release a $400 camera with a spectacular zoom range and some significant shortcomings. In addition to renting overpriced cable modems, your ISP may soon ask you to rent an overpriced mesh system. And a survey by a bank seems to suggest that users of bank apps place convenience ahead of security. And that's troubling. Throughout the entire universe, one of the best examples of entropy is my collection of audiophiles from CDs. I've been buying CDs since sometime in the 1980s, and I've copied them to a computer. But sometimes it's hard to find what I'm looking for, and some of the files that were processed a decade or more ago are low quality. I've been trying to clean up the mess, and part of the process involves reprocessing some of the CDs. It's a process that got underway a couple of years ago and then stalled when it turned out that entropy was increasing, not decreasing. I had a bunch of files that had been encoded at 96 or 128 kilobits per second. That's acceptable for files that will be played in an automobile, but I consider it insufficient for enjoyable listening in quiet surroundings. Maybe we should take a quick time out here and consider why rip CDs at all and wonder about the legality of it. Well, it's not illegal. U.S. copyright law says that ripping an original CD to your own digital files qualifies as fair use. That's as long as you don't distribute the copyrighted materials to others. But why do this? Well, it's convenience. Playing a CD involves finding the CD, loading it into a CD player, and then clicking the play button. And that process has to be repeated at least once an hour. Even if you have a CD player that holds multiple discs, it's a challenge to find the one you want to listen to. Once I owned a player that held 200 discs. Finding the CD is usually the most troublesome part of the process. If you have several hundred CDs, it can take quite a while, unless you've got them really well organized, which I don't. But if the CDs are all stored on your computer, Finding one takes only a few seconds. Better still, it's easy to create lists of favorites, playlists, and more. Whether you still buy CDs or download individual tracks from one of the many music services, organizing music on your computer can make enjoying them, well, more enjoyable. If you're working with CDs, you'll need a CD ripper. Several audio rippers are available, and I've used many of them. In fact, that's part of the problem. 
Apple wants me to create AAC files. Most of the other applications would create MP3 files, which are small but lossy, or WAV files, which are lossless but huge. When I processed a CD a second time to get better files, the result was often two of the same selections with different bit rates and slightly different names. Finding and deleting the old low-quality files while leaving the new high-quality files in place turned out to be a gigantic time sink. When I started the process a couple of years ago, I decided to stick with MP3 files at 256 kilobits. The files were still lossy, but they're considerably smaller than WAV files. When it was time to restart the process this year, another format seemed to be a better overall choice. FLAC, F-L-A-C, Free Lossless Audio Codec. It's actually been around for nearly two decades, and most computer-based players can handle FLAC files. Some portable devices can too. Most car audio systems cannot. So it was time to reconsider my choice for an audio ripper. The Fairstars CD ripper is free, but it uses FreeDB for track name lookups. I've had problems with FreeDB, so I wanted to find an application that works with the GD3 database, which provides consistent data and includes cover art for a huge range of CDs. The free exact audio copy program can be set to work with the GD3 database, but users do have to pay $8 per year for access. That's not a bad deal, but I found exact audio copy's setup process to be so cumbersome that I took a look instead at DB PowerAmp. Despite the fact that this is not a free application, I paid for a license after less than one day of using the 15-day free trial version. DB PowerAmp also offers a set of utilities for a small extra fee. These are intended to locate missing album art, identify duplicate files, and allow easy editing of the embedded tag information. With more than 30,000 audio tracks, I need all the help I can get. DB PowerAmp can create FLAC or MP3 files, and other formats too. FLAC has several levels, and if the files are lossless, you might wonder what the levels signify. Well, the difference is processing time, not quality. FLAC 0 will produce a slightly larger file, but will take less time to do it. FLAC 8 will produce slightly smaller files, but will take a lot more time to do the job. DB PowerAmp recommends FLAC 5, and that's what I used. If you decide to use MP3 files instead, you'll need to select a bitrate, which can be variable or set to a specific rate. The variable, or VBR setting, generally creates smaller files. The best setting for me if I'd want to create MP3 files would be one step down from the highest quality setting. It sets an approximate bitrate of 230 kilobits per second. DB PowerAmp displays process information that shows the RIP process status, including information about speed relative to the time required to play a track, the elapsed time, accuracy, and the estimated file size. The term RIP, by the way, is not an acronym. In print business, RIP is an acronym for Raster Image Process, how a file is processed before being sent to a printer. In the music context, it refers all the way back to the process of ripping music out of games on Amiga computers. The term has persisted all these years. During the rip process, DB PowerAmp may report some of the tracks as inaccurate. Don't panic. 
The flak compression process generates a cyclical redundancy check, or CRC value, and you might occasionally see the RIP status reported as inaccurate. Now, that doesn't mean there's necessarily a problem with the process, but only that the CRC value doesn't agree with what was derived by others. This can be the result of different CD pressings, and despite the scary warning, it seems not to be something worth being concerned about. Because many of the CDs I wanted to process had already been processed earlier, sometimes more than once, several copies of a CD might exist on the computer. I wanted to delete the lower quality MP3 files when I had a higher quality FLAC file. The DB PowerAmp developers have a separate Perfect Tunes application that, among other things, tries to identify duplicates. Although it did identify duplicates, it also said that thousands of unrelated files were duplicates. Additionally, deleting files from another application or from the operating system makes a mess of the MediaMonkey catalog. I do use Perfect Tunes to obtain missing album art, but not to identify duplicates. In fact, the most efficient way I've found to eliminate duplicates involves using MediaMonkey to limit the catalog view to a single artist and then to examine individual CDs. Where multiple tracks exist, I simply select the lower quality tracks and delete them. Instead of processing new rips to MediaMonkey's music directory, I use a separate directory so that I can ensure that everything is correct before moving files into the MediaMonkey directory. By default, DB PowerAmp creates a directory for each CD, and that is not my preferred way to organize files, particularly for multi-CD sets. So instead of having the Gold Medal Collection CD1 and the Gold Medal Collection CD2 for a collection of Harry Chapin tunes, I'd like to have a single directory called the Gold Medal Collection. That presents a problem of its own, though, because copying files from both CDs to a single folder Gets them all out of order with track one from the first CD followed by track one from the second CD. The solution is easy enough. Add CD1 as a prefix to the tracks from the first CD and CD2 for those from the second CD. DB PowerAmp does have the ability to add a CD number to a file's name, but I didn't care for the way it worked. And I didn't want to rename all of the files manually, but this did seem to be a task better handled after the rip. The astoundingly great bulk rename utility, which is free for personal non-commercial use, is perfect for this task. After processing a multi-disc collection, I open the directory for the first disc with the bulk rename utility, select all of the files, and add CD1 as a prefix to the file name. Then I do the same for the second CD's directory appending CD2. And when I've done that for all of the CDs, I copy the files into the first CD's directory and delete disk1 from the directory name. After making sure that the new files and directories are named appropriately, I move the files to the directory that MediaMonkey monitors, start MediaMonkey, and allow it to catalog all the new tracks. One more step remains. Some recording engineers prefer loud disks, while others prefer to be absolutely certain that the tracks they have recorded will never even begin to approach a clipping level. If you run a radio station, you have plenty of processing gear between the audio output from the studio and the transmitter. On the other hand, those who listen to music at home with an application like MediaMonkey will have none of that. And some of the music will be extremely loud, and some of the other tracks will be entirely too quiet. 
MediaMonkey provides a way to address that problem. During playback, users can enable a level playback option on the play menu. But this depends on first having analyzed each track's volume. So after importing new tracks into the program, I select all of the new tracks, right-click them, and choose Analyze Volume. After that, just sit back, relax, and listen. But what about the car? A while ago, I mentioned that most car audio systems do not know what to do with a FLAC file. But now I have a bunch of FLAC files. If I want to listen to these when I'm in the car, I need to convert them to MP3 files. Fortunately, that's really easy to do, and it doesn't degrade the FLAC files that I listen to at home. If you have DB Power Amp, you can use it to create FLAC files to MP3. Just write them to a different directory. Some music players can do that too, and MediaMonkey is one of them. So if you're ready to get your music library under control, check out some of the options I've mentioned. You'll find links on the TechBiter Worldwide website to Fairstar's CD Ripper. That's a free application. Exact Audio Copy, also free. DB Power Amp, well, not exactly free. And MediaMonkey, free version, but the paid version, really small price, is well worth it. short circuits, tiny computers aren't new. Apple, Microsoft, and all of the Windows PC makers have created small, lightweight computers that are intended primarily for mobile use. But now an Indiegogo project seems to promise the smallest near-full-function Windows machine. Notebooks and ultra-small Chromebooks have not generated significant sales, nor have their predecessors. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows three tiny computers from the 1980s. I owned two of the devices that are shown, and one that was very much like the third. Texas Instruments had a programmable calculator that could read programs from magnetic cards and then be docked to a printer. Radio Shack had a pocket PC that also had a dock. Both of these had limited appeal because the screen was so small. The Pokey device you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is similar to the device I owned, but I've forgotten the name of the one that I owned and I couldn't find a picture of it. Tiny computers are generally not suitable for large tasks. They're fine for web browsing, checking email, and editing documents. But small screens and cramped keyboards make them uncomfortable for long-term use or big projects. That doesn't keep developers from trying, and the GPD Pocket is the latest device trying to crack the market. The initial Indiegogo campaign closed in the spring after raising $3 million for advance orders. Now the company is ready with the Pocket 2. It has an Intel Core M3 processor. It can be ordered with up to 8 gigabytes of RAM and a 128 gigabyte solid-state disk drive. The 1920x200-pixel touchscreen is equipped with Gorilla Glass 4, Compared to a desktop computer, the Pocket 2 is far underpowered, but it might be just the right device for mobile use. The screen is tiny, just 7 inches diagonally. Compare that to 12-inch monitors on Apple and Microsoft computers. Although the Pocket 2 has a standard keyboard, key size and spacing are cramped. The M3 processor is the same as that used in Apple's basic MacBook, 
and in Microsoft's least expensive Surface Pro. The new model weighs in at 465 grams. If you're a pounds and ounces person, that's a little more than a pound. Computers ordered now will be delivered sometime in October from the company's headquarters in Hong Kong. The Indiegogo product page shows nearly $900,000 has been raised for the new prototype model, and there are currently almost 1,500 backers. During the crowdfunding phase, the Pocket 2 is available for $570 to $640. When offered at retail, the expected price will be $730 to $790. That compares to Apple's $1,300 and Microsoft's $819 when the optional keyboard is added. Ray-Ban sunglasses are expensive. Maybe they're worth the price, maybe not. Maybe you've seen messages promoting Ray-Ban sunglasses for $20 posted on Facebook. Don't click the link, because unsurprisingly, it is a scam. The image usually looks something like the one you'll see on the TechFighter Worldwide website, and despite the Ray-Ban official U.S. site claim, the site you'll actually go to is not a Ray-Ban site. But you knew that already, right? Besides being wary because of the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, there is this. The scammers use the Ray-Ban trademark with a hyphen. But the text says Ray-Ban with no hyphen. Now, the marketing department of a big company like Ray-Ban wouldn't allow something like that to go out the door. What else? Well, you could use a Whois site to find out who owns rbs-off.com. If we did that, we would find that the phony site is registered in a woman's name with an address that doesn't exist in Providence, Rhode Island, and that she uses a Yahoo email address. Ray-Ban is headquartered in Rochester, New York, and you can be pretty sure that anyone associated with domain name registration for the company will not be using a Yahoo email address. RBS-off.com is not the only fake Ray-Ban domain name being used, but they're all clearly phony addresses that should require no more than a quick glance. If a friend shares one of these scams on your Facebook timeline, there are a couple of actions that you can take immediately. First, delete the post on your timeline. Second, let the person who posted the message know that it's a scam. And maybe I should let you know that Spare Parts is not a scam, but it is only on the website. This week, Canon is about to release a $400 camera with a spectacular zoom range and some significant shortcomings. In addition to renting an overpriced cable modem to you, your ISP may soon ask you to rent an overpriced mesh system. And a survey by a bank seems to suggest that users of bank apps place convenience ahead of security. That is troubling. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.